1 Samuel chapter 18. 1 Samuel chapter 18. We're going to be reading about David and Jonathan's friendship as we keep uh, working through this series on friendship. 1 Samuel 18, verses 1 through 5. As soon as he, that is David, had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks, guys. All right. Hey, good morning. I am Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you guys for uh, making it out this morning. As, as Jeff said, we are continuing to work through a series of, uh, on friendship. And so we started uh, a couple of weeks ago. We're going to be going for a few more weeks talking about this topic of friendship. And it might be something that you don't hear talked about in church a lot. As a matter of fact, I've never heard, uh, before we started this series, a sermon on friendship. I'd never heard any real teaching in the church on friendship. And yet, you see not only kind of uh, paradigms for friendship set up all over the scriptures, but you see examples of friendship. You see examples uh, of deep connection between two friends. And that's what we see today in this story of David and Jonathan. And we're asking this question throughout this series, what does it mean to be a true friend? What does it look like, not just to to experience friendship, what does it look like to cultivate friendship? What does it look like to cultivate deep, intimate friendship in the midst of a world that so often drives us towards shallowness in our relationships? Right? I mean, like, right now, Facebook says that I have 1,300 friends, Uh, But I regularly see people showing up in my newsfeed who I don't ever remember actually meeting in real life. And they send me the candy crush, you know, request or something like that. Is that what we've settled for when it comes to friendship? And we live in a world, think about it, that is uber-connected. We can text, we can call, we can message someone, we can FaceTime someone anywhere in the world, anytime we want. And yet for many of us, we feel absolutely alone even if we're in the midst of a crowded room, even if your your social calendar is jam-packed, we wonder, does anyone really know me? And does anyone really love me as I am? And do I really know and love anyone else that way? Because for many of us, we have not learned what it means to be a true friend. This is a deficit, I think, that is is one of those deficits deficits you see just simply in modern society. We hunger for friendship. We feel this ache of loneliness. We know that we were made for something better, but we don't know how to actually do that. We don't know how to actually make and keep friends. And for many of us, if we're honest, we we wonder, is that even something that's possible in this world? That's where this passage today is so helpful. Because this story of David and Jonathan shows us something of what true friendship might look like in the midst of our broken world. 
It gives us a glimpse that there might be something better than shallow, transactional, transient, superficial relationships that are kind of the norm in our world. And it shows us how maybe we can begin to cultivate those friendships in our real life. But here's the thing we're going to see as, as we get into this passage. This vision of friendship, this vision that, that the Lord lays out here in 1 Samuel 18 and that you see all throughout the scriptures, it actually goes against the grain of the way that we are typically conditioned to think about friendship. Because how do we think about friendship? We think about friendship, we think friendship should be easy. What this text is going to show us is that true friendship is often hard. We think that friendship should be, just be natural. What this text shows us is that sometimes true friendship means going against the grain of what feels natural in the moment. We think friendship is, is just something that happens to you. It's something that, that you're just in the right place at the right time. And, and, and all those things are true. Friendship is a gift of God. But it also shows us that not only is it a gift of God, it's also something that you work for. It's something that you commit to. That's why, look at, look at verse 3. What did David and Jonathan do? They make, it says, a covenant. They make a covenant. They make a formal agreement to love one another as true friends. Now, we read that today, and that sounds really odd. But it hasn't actually been strange for much of human history. You actually go back into, in, into uh, the, the classical Greek and Roman literature, or you go back throughout 2,000 years of the history of the church, and you see people actually making public covenants of friendship. Now, it doesn't happen all the time. It's not a prescription. It's not a norm that you have to do. It's not like every friend you have, you need to break out the goat blood and have a ceremony or something like that. But there is a principle here, and here, the principle is what I want to pull on today that we see in this text. There is a principle here that shows us something about the nature of friendship in the midst of a transient, transactional world. And it shows us that true friendship is a commitment. True friendship is a commitment. True friendship says, I'm sticking with you. I'm not walking out on you. I am in this thing, and I'm going to work for this thing. Man, I don't know about you, but for me, I almost don't even have categories for that kind of friendship. For the, for the past hundred years or so, ever since Sigmund Freud, people have, have assumed, we as modern Westerners have assumed that all deep, intimate relationships ultimately have to be driven by sex. We assume that sex or that romance or whatever that thing is, that it's the driving force behind all human connection. By the way, this is why some people totally miss the point of the David and Jonathan story. Some people read this story in David and Jonathan and they see, well, these men loved each other deeply. They were committed to each other deeply and they assume it must have been a sexual or a romantic thing. Do you know why that is? That's because we as modern Westerners in a post-Freud world have an extremely narrow and diminished and truncated view of love. We assume that that's all there is to love. We assume that love is ultimately about sex. And by the way, even, like, even Christians have their own version of this, right? You see it in the way that Christian culture makes marriage the only thing. And we've adopted this Christianized, Disney-esque, Jerry Maguire view of, of marriage where I'm going to meet that perfect person who completes me and then we're going to live happily ever after. And in the process, we've placed so much weight on marriage and family that we have neglected the other ways that God has called us to experience love. And we wonder why our marriages are being crushed under the weight of impossible expectations. It's partly because we have neglected friendship. 
Now, please don't hear me minimizing marriage or family here. That is vitally important. In fact, marriage and friendship ought to actually enrich one another for, for two reasons. First of all, if you're married, you should be cultivating friendship with your spouse. They shouldn't just be a sexual partner. They shouldn't just be someone who helps you raise the kids. They shouldn't just be a roommate. You should be cultivating deep friendship with one another. But secondly, you should also, even if you're married, you should be cultivating deep, meaningful, same-sex relationships outside of your marriage. I got, I got a group of guys that have committed to doing this with me, and I've committed to doing it with them. And again, there's no blood involved. We haven't made any kind of formal covenant but we have committed to loving one another and to pointing one another to Jesus. My wife has a group of ladies that she does that with. And what that means is that it's a priority for us. What that means is that we free each other up. In our schedules, we free each other up to have that time because we have found that when we do that, we actually love each other better. So please understand, this is something that is vitally important, and we can't just, just elevate one kind of love to the exclusion, but they both mutually enrich one another. If you're married, it is vital for you to cultivate friendship. And if you're single, it is vitally important for you to cultivate friendship. 50% of you in this room are single. And some of you are hoping to get married someday. Some of you are not hoping for that. Some of you want to be called to lifelong singleness. Some of you here are divorced and you're single again and you're trying to figure out what that means for you. Some of you are gay. Some of you have been gay for as long as you can remember. And you have this, this attraction, this attraction to people of the same sex. And yet, and yet, you realize that you are still made for something more. And you're trying, to, you're trying to follow what Jesus says in his word about sex and marriage, that God created marriage as a covenant between man and woman as the context for sex. And you're trying with everything in you to honor Jesus in your sexuality. But in the back of your mind, you're wondering, does this mean that I am doomed to a life of loneliness? Does it mean that I will never experience deep love and deep commitment? And whatever background you come from, whatever wounds you bring into this place, whatever those questions are, I want you to hear that the answer according to the Bible is no. You are not doomed to a life where you never experience deep love and deep connection. God created you. He created me for deep, intimate love. And he wants us to experience that. And marriage and family are one context, a beautiful, essential context to, 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 to human society for what it means to experience deep love and deep belonging, but they are not the only context. We have been created to find love in friendship. Some of us here, some of you here today, are lonely in our marriages. Some are lonely in our singleness. Some are lonely in our sexuality. And maybe we've simply resigned ourselves to that loneliness. But God still says it is not good for human beings to be alone. That's why he created friendship. That's what you see in this passage. You see two men who love each other deeply. Two men who were married, who, who, who recognized that that wasn't all that there is, who loved each other deeply and who are deeply committed to one another and who weren't afraid to express it, who weren't afraid to show it and to be committed to it. We learned something today about the commitment of friendship. We learn that it's a commitment that lasts, that it's a commitment that endures. Three things we're going to see about the commitment of true friendship in this passage today. Three things. True friendship is stronger than adversity. 
Second, true friendship is stronger than ego. And third, true friendship is stronger than death. Stronger than adversity, stronger than ego, stronger than death. First, true friendship is a commitment that is stronger than adversity. Look at verse 1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, that's David, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Okay, so what's going on? Remember, we are dropping in on the middle of a story here. And so we've got to set the context for what's going on. Here, here's what's happened in really the last seven chapters of 1 Samuel. There's this guy named Saul. Jonathan's father is a man named Saul. Saul was the first king in ancient Israel. God, God brought him in. God said, this is your king. But Saul didn't obey the command of the Lord. And so God told him, I'm going to take the kingdom from you, and I'm going to give it to someone else. And then 1 Samuel 16, you see that the Spirit of God leaves Saul, and the Spirit falls on David, and David is anointed as the new king, as the future king, with the, king, with, with the Spirit of God. And God promises David, I'm going to build a dynasty for you. And then chapter 17, you see that the Israelites are encamped on one hill and the Philistines, their, their mortal enemies, are over here. And, and Saul, as the king of the people, ought to be leading the people into battle, but he is terrified because the Spirit of the Lord has left him and there's no one to fight this giant named Goliath. Until this little shepherd boy comes along, this, this teenager comes along, but he's anointed with the Spirit of God, and he says, I'll go, and I will fight that giant in the strength of the Lord. God sends him out, and the Lord triumphs through him. And then after that, verses 18 to 23, where we pick it up right now, Saul, what you find is that he becomes insanely jealous of David. He tries to kill David on multiple occasions. David actually has to go on the run for his life at some point. And right in the middle of all of that story of David, you find this friendship with Jonathan. It's like God providentially causes their paths to cross. It's the most dangerous time in David's life. He is constantly having to watch his back. He goes on the run for his life. Humanly speaking, the only reason that David survives this time of his life is because Jonathan was looking out for him. See, listen, a, a true friend doesn't run away when things get tough. Because true friendship is a commitment that is stronger than adversity. That's really important. Because adversity is part of life. Struggle and pain and danger are part of life. You, you may never be hunted by a Middle Eastern warlord, but you will experience adversity in your life. And when you experience that adversity, you will need real friends. Some of us don't like to admit that. Some of us don't like to think about it that way. Some of us want to think, I'm strong enough by myself. I don't need anyone else. I, to, to be honest, that's my default mode. I lived years of my life that way, walking through the darkest times of my life, not letting anyone into that pain. And I survived those years physically, but there was something that died inside of me during that time because I was trying to simply be strong on my own, like I didn't need anyone else. And in the process, I cut myself off from something of what it means to be human. You, you can do that. You can try to be strong enough on your own, but it will hollow out your soul in the end. God made us for community. God made us for friendship. This is part of what it means to be created in the image of God. Do you realize God is a community of friends? 
Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who love one another, who defer to one another, who serve one another since before the world was even created. And so when we isolate ourselves from friendship, we cut ourselves off from something of what it means to be human. And that's where some of us in this room are. We don't want to open ourselves up to other people. We want to be strong enough on our own. And especially, especially when you walk through adversity, especially when you walk through hard times, you can have this reflex where you simply push everybody else away because you're trying to manage everything on your own. You walk through a divorce. You say, I'm never trusting anyone again. A friend betrays you, and you make sure that I'm going to build up some walls this time so that I can keep people a little bit at a distance. A church community hurts you. A family member wounds you. Whatever it is in your story. And you say, I'm not going there again. I'm not trusting again. If you're like me, your tendency is to build up distance because it feels safe. It protects us from the hurt. But listen, over time, it will close you off to love. And it will close you off from friendship. And it will close you off to something of the truly human life that you've been created for. True friendship is a commitment that is stronger than adversity. A true friend is someone who sticks with you when things get tough. So let me ask you, let me ask myself, do do you have a friend like that? Are you, this may be the better question to ask, are you a friend like that? Are you the kind of friend who, who can stick by your friend even when everything else falls apart for them? Maybe even harder, are you the kind of friend who can open yourself up to your friends even when everything falls apart for you? I mean, think about these guys. Think about Jonathan here. So do you think maybe it was hard for Jonathan to be loyal to David? Jonathan's own father, who's the king, is trying to kill David. At one point, Saul actually tries to kill Jonathan because of his friendship with David. He hurls a spear at him in the middle of dinner. Like, you think your family dinners are awkward? Like... Saul tried to spear Jonathan in the middle of dinner. And yet Jonathan remains faithful to his friend. Think about David. Do you think it might have been difficult for David to trust Jonathan? I mean, Jonathan was Saul's son. Jonathan was the heir to the throne. Jonathan had every earthly reason to turn on David. And yet David trusted him. He trusted him with his life. He trusted Jonathan, that Jonathan would be faithful to this covenant, even when it cost him, even when it was painful for him. See, true friendship is not merely transactional. True friendship, covenant friendship, means that I stop calculating costs and benefits. It means that it's not simply about what I get out of the relationship. It means that I lovingly and sacrificially give myself to the other other person. And we tend to be so transactional in the way that we think about friendship. Most of us are more concerned with networking than we are with friendship. We treat people like commodities. We're always running a cost-benefit analysis in our heads. We're always saying, what can they do for me? Maybe they can connect me to their professional networks. Maybe they can connect me to their social networks. Maybe simply being friends with this person will make me feel a little bit better about myself. And we get into these friendships for what we can get from other people. And when we stop seeing a return on our investment, we move on to something else. That's not what you see here. You see two friends in David and Jonathan who love each other, who trust each other, who risk for one another, who sacrifice for one another. 
That's the second thing you see in this passage. True friendship is a commitment that's stronger than adversity. Second thing you see, true friendship is a commitment that's stronger than ego. It's a commitment that's stronger than ego. Let me show you that. Look again, 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Now, he's making a covenant. There are a number of ways in our world today and in the ancient world especially where you could make a covenant. So look specifically at how Jonathan symbolizes this covenant. Look at verse 4. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Now we look at that and we say like, What in the world is going on here? But people in the ancient world would have read that and they would have known exactly what's going on here. Remember who Jonathan is. Jonathan is King Saul's eldest son. What that means is that Jonathan is the heir to the throne. So when Jonathan takes off his robe and gives it to David, he is not simply giving David the shirt off his back. He is giving him the royal robe. When Jonathan takes off his armor and gives it to David, he is giving him the armor that belongs to the crown prince. When Jonathan gives David his sword and his bow and his belt, he is giving David the things that marked him out as the heir to the throne. You see what he's doing here? Jonathan is giving David the throne. Think about that. He is laying down his rights for the good of his friend. He is saying of his friend, He must increase and I must decrease. See, Jonathan recognizes that God has anointed David to be the next king. And it's fascinating. He doesn't begrudge David. He's not jealous of David. He doesn't try to compare himself to David. He willingly, even eagerly, gives up the kingdom to the friend that he loves. Now, I I sit there and I put myself in that situation, and I don't know if I would have been that kind of of a friend. I probably would have fought for the throne. I probably would have tried to prove how I'm more deserving than David. Most scholars believe that Jonathan was was probably around 40, maybe in his 40s here, and David is just a teenager. Jonathan's been battle-tested. He's been been a warrior, a mighty warrior his entire life. He had all this experience, right? He's a man. He's 40. If you don't get that, never mind. (laughs) Sorry. Look it up. Just Google, I'm a man, I'm 40. All right. David, David is some kid who can barely shave. Yeah, I mean, he killed this giant Goliath, but like, is he really ready to be king? Has he really been tested? But you don't see that with Jonathan, do you? You don't see any jealousy. You don't see any of those comparison games that so often we play. You see him willingly eagerly laying down his claim to the throne and giving it to his friend. I'm convinced that envy, that jealousy is one of the primary things that keeps us from deep, lasting relationships. Because we are always comparing ourselves to one another. Your friend gets engaged. They get that promotion. They take that exotic vacation. They announce that they're pregnant. And you pretend that you're happy for them and you congratulate them and you like their Instagram post and you say, I'm so happy for you, but in the back of your mind, you're really saying, what about me? What about me? Now listen, some of that pain is normal. Some of that disappointment is good and right and human. So we don't want to minimize that, but sometimes we go beyond that. 
And sometimes we find ourselves resenting people who have what we want. We find ourselves begrudging our friends because of the ways that God has blessed them. Somebody please tell me I'm not the only one. Can we be honest about that here today? Sometimes we struggle to be genuinely happy for our friends. We struggle with envy. We struggle with bitterness. We begin to compare. We become so preoccupied with the things that they have and the things that we don't have. Listen, that will kill any chance you have of deep, lasting friendship. You might keep it together on the surface. You might smile and hug and high-five and all those kinds of things, but it will eventually undermine the very foundation of your friendship. So the question is, how do we become the kind of friends who are genuinely happy for our friends? Even if we miss out on what they have, even if we have to sacrifice for their happiness, that kind of friendship is only possible because true friendship revolves around God's purposes, not my purposes. It revolves around God's purposes, not my purposes. That's the only way that you can be happy for someone who has something that you want. That's what Jonathan recognized here. Jonathan recognized that God's purposes were better than his. And so Jonathan had these plans. He was going to be the king. He's going to to be the, the ruler of God's people. God has other plans. And Jonathan recognized that, and he trusted God enough to trust that God's plans for him and God's plans for David and God's plan for his people were better than his own. Can I be brutally honest? Can I, can I like have a confession here for a minute? This is a real struggle for pastors. This is a real struggle for me personally. I, I have friends who have accomplished, honestly, so much more than I have that God has used to do extraordinary things in his kingdom. And he hasn't chosen to use me to do these kind of extraordinary things. I'm so ordinary compared to them. And sometimes, if I can be honest, I get jealous. Sometimes I compare myself to them. Sometimes my own insecurities get in the way of me being truly happy for them and truly happy for the work that God is doing through them. Because I love my own plans. I love my own ego. I love my own kingdom more than I love God's purposes. So that's what it is for me. Let me ask you, what is it for you? What is it for you? Is it the friend who has the perfect marriage? Is it the friend who just made partner? Is it the friend who just posted their pic from Maui? What is it for you? We will never be able to really love our friends, to truly celebrate with them, to truly want the best for them until we learn to trust God, until we learn to trust that God has poured out his grace on all of us and he's going to bless them how he wants to bless them. He's going to bless us how he wants to bless us and it's all a gift of his grace. That's the beauty of true friendship. True friendship allows us to truly be happy for the other person because true friendship revolves around a common purpose. It revolves around a common purpose. It's not just about what I get out of the friendship. It's not just about what you get out of it. It is about something that is bigger than both of us. Again, verse 1, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and he loved him as his own soul. David has just killed Goliath. David has just rescued God's people from their mortal enemies. And Jonathan sees it, and something is lit in his soul that he loves more than anything else in the world. 
Because Jonathan, if you read throughout 1 Samuel, he loves the people of God and the glory of God and the kingdom of God more than anything else. He sees David. He sees this warrior that God's raised up. And, 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 and he sees that God has raised him up to rescue his people and that draws him to him. Because more than his ego and more than his position and more than his reputation and more than his kingdom, Jonathan loves the people of God and the glory of God and the kingdom of God. And that's why he can love David as his own soul. I love this language here. Verse 1 says that their souls were knit together. Now, what a beautiful picture that their souls are so intertwined that it's like they become one soul. They loved the same thing, and that united them in something that was bigger than their own egos. Listen, if you want to have friends, if you want to have true friends, if you want to have the kind of friends that endure, then your friendship has to be about something bigger than you. That's true in marriage. That's true in friendship. That's true in any relationship that's going to last. It has to be about something that is bigger than you. This is why some of us want friends so desperately, but we can't seem to make friends. We can't seem to keep friends because there's nothing bigger for the friendship to be about. C.S. Lewis famously said in The Four Loves, he said, friendship is born at that moment when one man says to another, what, you too? I thought I was the only one. That's what happens with David and Jonathan here. You read 1 Samuel and see that Jonathan loves to risk his life for the good of God's people. And he sees this young man here who loves to do the same. He sees this shepherd boy who, who trusts God enough to face down a giant. And he says, what? You too? You love the same things that I love? You hate the same things that I hate? Your life is built on the same thing that my life is built on? This is the great promise of Christian friendship. As followers of Jesus, we build our lives on the one thing that truly matters. We build our lives on the one thing that lasts for eternity. We build our lives on Jesus and his kingdom. And that unites us in lasting friendships that are able to weather adversity and that are stronger than our own egos. I, mean, I think about my own life. Like God has given me friends through his church that I never would have been friends with otherwise. Right? Because even though they love golf, and I would rather watch paint dry, even, even though they like beer and I think it tastes like puke, even though they're Red Sox fans and I'm a Yankees fan, we have something deeper that unites us in common. Different hobbies, different ethnic backgrounds, different political beliefs, but we have something deeper in common. We have Jesus in common. We've all got this one mutual friend from Nazareth who unites us in a friendship that is deeper than anything else in the world. That's why it's so important to cultivate true spiritual friendship in the church. Our friendships should be about something more than business or sports or music or hobbies or food or even our kids. Those things are fine. Those things are good gifts from God. They are good gifts to enjoy with our friends. But God offers us something deeper. God offers us something better. God offers us something more lasting. I've got a group of guys that I meet with every Thursday evening. I love these guys. I love hanging out with these guys. I love broing around with these guys. I love all the fun that we have together. But we also had a conversation just this past week 
about how we want to make sure that our friendship is about something deeper. We want to make sure that our friendship is built on Jesus and what he's doing in our lives. We kind of started out that way, but, but we weren't being very intentional, and so we're intentionally working things into our regular time together. Not that we don't still have fun, not that we don't still laugh and hang out, but we're rooting our friendship in something that will last. And let me ask you, just, just encourage you to think about that. Think about the friendships that God has given you. How are you going to do that in your friendships? How are you cultivating depth in your friendships? How are you intentionally rooting your friendships in something that is bigger than you? doesn't mean that you need to listen to a sermon every time you get together, but, but let's be the kind of friends who can talk about real things. Let's be the kind of friends who love each other at a soul level, not simply at a surface level. That's the kind of friendship that will endure adversity. That's the kind of friendship that's stronger than ego. Third thing you're going to see here, that's the kind of friendship that's stronger than death. True friendship is a commitment that is stronger than death. And I'm actually not going to spend a ton of time here because we're going to come back to this in a few weeks. But just to kind of fill in a little more of the story of David and Jonathan. What you find as you continue to read First and Second Samuel, you find that their friendship is a friendship that's stronger, not only stronger than the ups and downs of life, but is actually stronger than death. For Samuel chapter 20, they, they expand on this covenant that they've made. And, and they say, we're going to be committed not to, just to each other. We're actually going to be committed to each other's families. So David uh, promises Jonathan that when he becomes the king, he's going to take care of Jonathan, and he's going to take care of Jonathan's family. And then you get throughout 1 Samuel, you get to the very beginning of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 1, and, and you see the story of this battle, and Saul and Jonathan have died in battle. And now David's the king. And usually what would have happened in the ancient Near East is that when there was a king die, when, died, when there was a change of dynasty, the new king would go all throughout the kingdom and he would wipe out all the descendants of the previous dynasty. And that's what everybody is expecting in 2 Samuel. Everybody is expecting David to do. They're expecting he is going to search throughout the entire kingdom and he is going to slaughter anyone who's related to Saul. But that's not what David does. Because he still loves his friend Jonathan, and his commitment endures even past Jonathan's death. So in fact, what you find is that David searches throughout the whole kingdom, and he finds one last remaining son of Jonathan, a, a son named Mephibosheth. And instead of killing him, he brings him into the royal palace, and he treats him like part of the royal family. See, Jonathan and David had this lasting friendship that endured even in the face of death itself. Jonathan risked his own life for David's life. And David was committed to Jonathan even after he died because true friendship is a commitment that is stronger than death. Now I realize, even as I say that, that might sound a little bit over the top to you. Like that might be an eye-roll-inducing statement. You say, that's a nice story. Like, I'm glad, I'm glad David and Jonathan had that kind of friendship, but, but I don't think that's reality. And I completely understand that. One of the things that, that's been uprooted in my heart this week is that I've got this cynicism about what true friendship can be. Because no matter how good your friendship in the world is, and sometimes God does give us these kind of friendships where they're these amazing, rare friendships, but for many of us, probably for most of us, we would look at this and we would say, our friendships don't measure up. Our friendships never measure up to the ideal, do they? The truth is, our friends disappoint us, and we often disappoint them. We fail to live up to their expectations, they fail to live up to our expectations. Sometimes they turn on you, sometimes they abandon you, and sometimes you actually do that to them. 
See, our experience of friendship in this world is a beautiful gift of God's grace. But it's not complete, and it will not complete you. For some of us, this is why we can't keep friends. Because we load our friendships with impossible expectations that no one can live up to in real life. And that desire, that hunger for friendship is a good desire, but we will never be able to truly enjoy the friends God has given us if we load it down with impossible expectations. Because here's the thing, our desire for friends, our desire for friendship is actually intended to point us to something better. Whether you've had great friends, whether you've been hurt deeply by your friends, whether you've just got friendships that don't measure up, what you and I and every single one of us needs to know is that we have been made for a better friend and we have been made for a better friendship. We've been made to be friends of Jesus. Now, I know that sounds crazy. Like when I think that Jesus would want to be my friend, it makes me absolutely question that that's a possibility. If I hadn't read it in the scriptures, I wouldn't believe it. But listen to what he says, John chapter 15. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. See, Jesus is the friend who makes all other friendships possible. He's the friend who sticks with us through adversity. He's the friend who refuses to walk away when things get tough. He's the friend who promises, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. He's the friend who laid down his ego for us. He's the friend who existed as God, who created the universe, who ruled on the throne of heaven, but who laid aside his rights and who humbled himself and became a servant so that he could give us the kingdom. He's the friend who took off his royal robe and he put it on us so that we can become heirs of the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is the friend who sticks with us even in the face of death. Not just a friend who risks his life, he's the friend who laid down his life. David was saved through Jonathan's sacrificial friendship, but you and I are saved through Jesus' sacrificial friendship. The friend who's never walking out on you the friend who's never giving up on you, the friend who is laying down his ego for you, the friend who lays down his very life for you. See, when you have a friend like that, you can learn to be a friend to others. When you have a friend who is always with you, when you have a friend who is always for you, when you have a friend who always has your back, when you have a friend who says, I'm not going anywhere, when you have a friend who laid down his life for you, you can Freely love others with that kind of love. Even when they don't live up to your expectations. Even when it's difficult to open yourself back up because you know that your truest friend, you know that the friend who laid down his life is not walking out on you. No human friendship is ideal. No human friendship is perfect. You're not a perfect friend. I'm not a perfect friend. We will never find a merely human being who's a perfect friend, but Jesus is the perfect friend. And he makes us his friends, and he enables us to be true friends to one another. John chapter 15 that I just mentioned happens on the night before Jesus goes to the cross. On the night before Jesus goes to the cross, he makes a covenant with his friends. He says, I'm your friend, you're my friends, and I'm going to lay down my life for you. And he symbolizes it with them. He doesn't doesn't take off his armor. He doesn't take off his robe. He doesn't give them his sword. He takes bread. And he breaks it. And he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. 
And he takes wine and he pours it out. And he says, this is my blood of the covenant that is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. Eat this bread and drink this cup as a reminder, as a celebration of our friendship. Eat this bread and drink this cup as a reminder of my love for you that is stronger than death itself. So let me ask you here today, have you experienced that? You experience that friendship with you. Do you know what it is to be the friend of Jesus? He poured out his blood to seal his love for you. He poured out his blood to make us his friends. So if that's you, if if you're trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection, if if you've come into that relationship with him, then come and eat and drink today. And as you're taking the piece of the bread and as you're dipping it in the cup, be reminded that Jesus is the friend who loves you and he is the friend who will never stop loving you. Whether we do that here, we have stations at the front, we'll have stations out in the back. We simply come down the aisle, we tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup, we take it and return to our seats. Maybe you're here today and you've not experienced that. Maybe, maybe you've never experienced what it is to be a friend of Jesus. Maybe you're not trusting in his body broken for you and his blood shed for you to make you right with God. And if that's you, we're so thankful that you're here. We're thankful that you're here to explore these things. And we would encourage you just to remain seated while others come to take the bread and the cup. It's not because we think we're morally superior or in any possible way. But it's simply because this meal is a covenant meal. It's a reminder that Jesus has given to those who trust in him, to those who have come into that friendship with him. So maybe you've got questions about that. Maybe you're saying, like, I have no idea what you're talking about, but I want to explore that further. We would love to speak with you about that after the service. So let's pray. We'll take the Lord's Supper. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you have created us for friendship, friendship with one another that mirrors who you are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and friendship with you, that even though we were your enemies, even though we turned our backs on you and spit in your face and wanted our own kingdom and didn't want you to be our king, we thank you that you still loved us. Thank you for giving your son. Thank you that, that he calls us to be his friends. Thank you for his, his body broken for us and his blood spilled for us, his blood of the covenant poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. It's covenant that brings us into friendship with you. Father, I pray that even as we take this, this bread and as we take this cup, we would be reminded of your love for us, that you are the friend who sticks closer than a brother, that you are the friend who never gives up and never walks out on us. And I pray that that would make us better friends to one another. Praise things in Christ's name. Amen.